Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Come with me. And I show you how deep the rabbit hole goes. In movies, movies that had stories. That the story just sucks them in. This is just the beginning. We would be honoured if you would join us. Hello and welcome to another Film Stories with Simon Brew. I am Simon Brew, that's all you need to know about me. Um, This podcast is designed to go a little bit behind the scenes of pretty popular movies, generally quite mainstream ones, and just try and uncover some of the little stories of their production, the stories of their release, just the tales um, behind some of the films that you might like um, and films that I do tend to particularly like as well. I'm going to start this week's episode by taking us all the way back to 1991. And let me just play you a little clip of what we've got first to give you a taster. It's in the hole! The gallery's ecstatic! Oh, he's got to be happy with that one, Tommy. So what do you say, Eddie? Two and a half minutes to save Anna, three and a half minutes to save the world. 6-0-0. Side by side? Da-da-da. Oh, we ain't got a barrel of money. We may be ragged and funny, but we'll travel along. Hit it, Eddie! Singing a song. Side by side. Right then, we're at 1991's, um, I think I can use the word infamous, uh, Hudson Hawk. Uh, A Bruce Willis vehicle that was um, released slap bang in the middle of the summer of movie stars. Let's not forget this is the year where Arnold Schwarzenegger starred in Terminator 2 Judgment Day. Kevin Costner was in there with Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. And there was Bruce Willis back again, um, expected to uh, be one of the box office champions with Hudson Hawk. Um, The... I should say from the outset that if you're looking for um, a savaging of Hudson Hawk, you're very, very much in the wrong place. Um, I went to see the film when it came out in the UK, which was about a month after its US release. And the headlines were all about this box office bomb and how terrible it was. I remember toddling along to see it at my local Odeon. Other cinemas are, are clearly available. And um, I kind of got to the end and thought, well, it's messy. It's it's a bit all over the place. It's bonkers. But it, it, it's really kind of good fun. Um, and then I went back and I read some of the criticism of the film. And, and to be honest, it was one of the, first, the, the very earliest times in my life where my view of a movie really conflicted with what I was reading um, in the reviews of the film. And I think um, I think at that stage I was kind of, well, it must be me that's wrong. Um, clearly all these people who know better than me um, have judged this film and I'm the one out of kilter. And it's only over time, really. I, I was just like, no, no, I, I really enjoy the film. Um, it's little secret that this was um, a big passion project for Bruce Willis. And in fact, um, Willis had sat on the idea for what would become Hudson Hawk for just over 10 years. 
and it was courtesy of um, a, a friendship and a, and a union with a songwriter by the name of Robert Kraft, who would go on to head up 20th Century Fox Music Division. And Kraft was the one who came up with the idea of, of the Hudson Hawk. And as legend goes, he'd read a, an article in a paper about a wind that blew off Lake Michigan that was that was severe and fierce. And, and the wind itself had the nickname the Hawk. Fast forward to um, a day when he happens to be walking through New York City and uh, the wind, there, a, a wind hits him coming off the river. Um, and he then figured, well, that's Hudson Hawk. I don't know the, the full truth of that, but that sounds a, a lovely little Genesis story. Um, Kraft and Willis then got um, in conversation about uh, about the song Hudson Hawk, um, and Willis uh, pursued the idea of exploring this as a movie character. Interestingly, um, Hudson Hawk is the, the only time either Robert Kraft or Bruce Willis would have a writing credit on a movie. Now it's important to um, it's important to look back at, at just where Bruce Willis's career was at this moment in time. Um, he was preparing, obviously Die Hard in uh, Die Hard broke him through, and he was preparing Die Hard Two, Die Harder, that was set for release in 1990. That at that time I believe was the most expensive motion picture ever made, or certainly up there. I don't know if The Abyss did uh, eclipse it, but certainly the $75 million it was costing to bring John McClane back in a Die Hard sequel was enormous. Big things were expected, but Bruce Willis was clearly one of your go-to movie stars. And if you managed to land him for your summer project, then your movie studio was in a good place. And that was where TriStar Pictures came in. TriStar, um, TriStar teamed up with Willis uh, to make the movie. Uh, a screenplay was was put together with the help of Daniel Waters. Daniel Waters and Michael Lehman uh, were brought in as the creative forces. Um, the pair of them had respectfully, respectfully uh, written and directed Heathers, which just recently has celebrated its 30th birthday. Um, and Lehman's been doing some Q&A screenings in London uh, off the back of that. Also, to give this some context, Willis was um, just busting out of expectations by signing up to play the role of Sher uh, to, to play uh, the significant role uh, opposite Tom Hanks's Sherman McCoy in the adaptation of the Bonfire of the Vanities, um, and the, the two the, the two projects just slightly overlapped, and it wouldn't be known clearly as as Hudson Hawk was being prepared that uh, the Bonfire of the Vanities would go on to be a notable um, a notable flop in its own right. Um, as far as Hollywood was concerned, as far as the industry was concerned, this was a big new Bruce Willis picture and, and they wanted to be uh, they wanted to be on board with it. Now the concept of Hudson Hawk um, uh, sees Willis uh, as the legendary uh, the, the le a legendary cat burglar, uh, cat burglar, the Hudson Hawk. Um, um, and the the spin really is that as he does as he does his burglaries, uh, he and his accomplice Danny Aiello, uh, the two of the, the two being longtime friends who were looking for a project to work together on, uh, would sing classic swing uh, hits as they went uh, as they went about their burglaries, allowing them to effortlessly time how long it would take before security and police forces were were duly alerted. 
Now, I mentioned Bonfire of the Vanities there, and um, it, it, it's a useful touch point, um, not least because Julie Salomon wrote an excellent book um, dissecting the making of that film. And in that book, and this was the first time these, um, these rumours were really heard, she charted the growing influence of Bruce Willis behind the scenes on movies, that this what very much... Um, was not a man who was a movie star for hire who would turn up, do his shift and go home. He was looking more and more to have creative input into his movies. Um, I don't think this is massively unusual that movie stars want some degree of um, some degree uh, of involvement and say. I mean, Harrison Ford on the set of Clear and Present Danger, for instance, I remember reading a making of article on that film where Ford was suggesting things like, well, jamming, uh, jamming a, a wheel circuit later on in the film just because otherwise his character's walking across uh, the screen and doing nothing. And Julie, that made it into the film. But in the case of Willis, it was very, very clear to all concerned that this was his film. He had originated the idea. Um, he'd, um, you know, his name was his name was very much on this. Um, but the problems didn't take long um, to come to light, and they've been most um, <laughs> detailed, particularly in Richard E. Grant's wonderful uh, memoir with memoir with nails. And Grant, um, towards the end of the chapter, well, he, he, uh, he talks about watching Hudson Hawk for the first time and basically uh, walking out in despair. It would be fair to say he's no fan of the movie, although he does also talk in With Nails about how he was sat at a screening of it in front of uh, the late Robert Altman and Tim Robbins. And Altman said, oh, I might have something for you. And uh, that something for him was a role in the player. And so any thoughts that Grant had that his career would uh, would would hit the buffers off the back of Hudson Hawk were quickly allayed by the fact that Altman had actually cast him in something else. Um, but Grant was brought in to, uh, to play the villain of the movie. And he talks uh, quite openly about the hoopla around Die Hard 2's release, about how being in the circle of producer Joel Silver and star Bruce Willis, um, was really quite a thing that once he'd done that, once he'd done the deal that he was going to sign off in uh, for Hudson Hawk, um, he was flown off to the Die Hard 2 premiere. And Joel Silver would tell him stories Ah, oh, this is going to be you next year, Hudson Hawk's going to be as big uh, as Die Hard 2. And there was a lot of bravado uh, about the project. What there wasn't, though, uh, for such a hugely ambitious uh, project was a strong working relationship between director and star and a finished script. Now, we've co I've covered in a previous film stories um, the story of Die Hard 4 and how Kevin Smith, who would who would have his run-ins with Willis, uh, subsequent uh, consequence of that, um, charted. Willis really pushing director Len Wiseman on the set of Die Hard 4 of being a, a heavy creative force on that movie. I think you can politely say that. Um, but Willis was um, was regarded by the sounds of it as the boss on the set of Hudson Hawk. That um, the New York Times, for instance, had a quote that said, like a maniacal clown, uh, Willis would come to the set with a bag of tricks, new ways of playing a scene and bits of business for his character to try out. While that may have been a fine idea creatively, uh, two uh, high ranking members of the production staff acknowledged that it delayed production and seemed to erode my, uh, Mr. Lehman's authority. And the, the authority of Michael Lane did come up uh, as quickly as the uh, press junket for the film. There was a premiere. Premiere magazine did an on set uh, piece with, um, with uh, a set visit to Hudson Hawk. And Lehman was quoted in that as saying, what I say doesn't necessarily go. 
Um, and this was a quote uh, that consequently the, the word was put out or was taken out of context and, and was wheeled back somewhat. However, um, there was clear, uh, the, 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 it, sounds to me, it sounds to me that there was a clear difference between the film Layman thought he was going to make and Willis wanted to make. And Grant charts a uh, particular one scene in his book where Willis tells uh, Richard E. Grant to, to, quote, go start raving mental in a particular scene. And then Layman quietly sidles up to him and tells him not to do that and actually to do less. And you can just see the, the kind of clash of styles to a degree in the finished movie that it, it, it's 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 an odd movie. It's a really odd movie for us for a summer blockbuster um, that it can't often make up its mind whether it wants to be a James Bond caper. There's bits of action movie in there. There's comedy in there. It was certainly marketed as an action movie, although few people involved with it would ever uh, would ever class it as such. Um, what's eye opening is, is just is just some of the stories that Grant puts forward about how every weekend there would be an exodus. Willis would jet off to another place around the world. And Willis doesn't come out the stories badly, to be clear. I, there's no hatchet job that I saw in there. And Grant acknowledges that when Willis turns on his charm, it's just great to be in, in the middle of. Conversely, he does tell the story of a movie star who, who stays in his trailer until the last minute. Um, and who pushes and pushes and pushes on scenes and how production uh, kept getting delayed and delayed and delayed as arguments went on between Joel Silver, Michael Lehman and Bruce Willis about particular scenes, about particular moments um, and how the script constantly changed uh, throughout production. In the midst of all of this, incidentally, Richard E. Grant was offered the role of the Sheriff of Nottingham in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, um, but the Hudson Hawk schedule uh, was running over um, and was expected to continue to run over. And because of that, um, we got Alan Rickman as the Sheriff of Nottingham in Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves instead, because Grant couldn't say for definite he would be free by this point. Interestingly, Grant got the role off the back of both Willis and his then wife Demi Moore being fans of his work in How to Get Ahead in uh, Advertising and With Nail and I. Um, and Michael Lehman and, and, and Daniel Waters were also huge, huge fans of uh, Grant and they approached him and then needed to get Bruce Willis's sign off. Um, I don't think that, again, is particularly unusual for a big movie star project. Um, but nonetheless, it kind of adds to the to the mythology of the of this wild out of control film. And certainly the headlines around the time it was being made reflected that this was a film that was going over, um, that was going over schedule, was going over budget. Um, the, the budget for the film actually was was relatively modest at first. It was reported to be around the 42 million mark, uh, depending on which source you believed around the time it went up to somewhere around 70. Um, it should still be noted this was the summer of Terminator 2, which broke a hundred million budget for the very first time. It was also cheaper than the year before's Die Hard 2 to make, although inevitably when it didn't make its money back, the, the whole budget figure is thrown into it is thrown into a different focus. I would like to throw in an aside. Um, the Ocean Software did a really a really good video game of Hudson Hawk in the midst of it all. That, um, like a lot of Ocean Software video games, I've touched on them once or twice in this podcast, uh, across these podcasts, didn't massively reflect the film, um, but nonetheless was a fun game to play. But also because the film was in such a degree of flux, because those rewrites and new schedules were coming in so regularly, it must have been quite hard to nail down exactly what it was as well. The, 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 the movie was. 
there were um, there were other little. Th th I mean, there were other problems. Joss Vacano was originally uh, the cinematographer and uh, apparently didn't have the best of times on the production. Um, six weeks in, Dante Spinotti was brought in to to replace him. Furthermore, Andy McDowell, who uh, plays the female lead in the film, was herself um, a, a late replacement into the movie. And she joined just a couple of days into production. Uh, her role was supposed to originally be played, I gather, by Mariska Detmers. Um, but the story being that um, a, an injury to her back led to her departure. There are other stories and gossipy ones around that, but I, I'm not pushing into that. Um, the key thing here is McDowell was a very late addition to the film. Um the film um, did go over schedule and it didn't sound like the most fun to make. Uh, the final part of the movie was shot in Budapest at a point where uh, a number of um, Hollywood production, I think Meeting Venus had just been filming in Budapest around the same time. Uh, Schwarzenegger and James Belushi had shot parts of Red Heat there. Um, and and Julie, the, the, the final parts of Hudson Hawk were done. Uh, not that Bruce Willis was there for them. Um, as Grant, again, just going back to his excellent book, he talks in there about he was shooting his finale speech uh, to, to the Hudson Hawk. Um, but Willis had gone the week before. He'd already filmed his stuff and he wasn't hanging around for the reaction stuff on it. In the midst of Hudson Hawk's um, uh, Hudson Hawk's production and post-production subsequent release, Bruce Willis had become a target in the ta uh, in the movie press. Uh, Bonfire of the Vanities had um, shown that he was a movie star who's uh, you know uh, who was fallible, um, and he was there to be toppled. And Hudson Hawk, following on so closely from Bonfire of the Vanities, didn't cap his best year at the box office. Julie. Um, Hudson Hawk would come nowhere near Die Hard 2 levels of cash. I think it, it grows something like 17 million in the US um, in the end and a million miles below what you would expect from a Bruce Willis picture at that point. Uh, this was, um, you know, Terminator 2 Judgment Day uh, broke 200 million in the US. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves became a huge international hit. And there was Bruce Willis who, who kind of lost the movie star battle of that summer. However, um, I mean, it's worth noting, actually, there was one more major ramification, which is TriStar Pictures, as it was then, it's still around as a name and it's still around as a subdivision, was formally folded into Columbia Pictures under the Sony Pictures banner off the back of the failure of Hudson Hawk, that it was it was a key moment in that company as well. I'd still say, though, that this that Hudson Hawk, if I mean, if you judge it on box office, you can't say it was it, it, it was um, you, you can't say it was a massive success. Although conversely, I would say that um, over time, it's more than likely made its money back. I mean, it's quite modest in the scheme of in the scheme of modern movies. But also this the, the, the huge backlash against it at the time. Um, and the box office failure, I can't help think, took a degree of courage out of um, out of the kind of summer blockbusters we got for, for many years after that, that it seemed better to follow a sequel template or a more solid movie star template or, or fall into very fixed idea of what genre was than it was to go just a bit nuts and make a kind of caper with a bit of comedy driven by a movie star with soundtrack, a great Michael Kamen score. And I, I, I rewatched Hudson Hawk just before um, just before doing this podcast. I don't think it's uh, I don't think it's perfect. 
Um, but I'm not going to I wouldn't call it an honourable failure because I think as as a piece of blockbuster cinema, actually, I thought it's a really good, fun film. And you know what? I still think so today as well. For our second film story this week, uh, I'm going to stay fairly predictably in the 1990s, but I'm going to wind forward uh, six years. Um, let me play your clip first and I'll come back the other side of this. And we've got a film to talk about. Meet Romy and Michelle. Remember that time I barfed from really bad Mexican food? So gross. I hate throwing up in public. Oh, me too. Oh. They walk the walk. God, this underwear is totally riding up my butt. <laughs> they talk the talk. Romy, did you lose weight? Oh. All I've had to eat for the past six days are gummy bears, jelly beans, and candy corn. God, I wish I had your discipline. That, ladies and gentlemen, is the, in my view, hugely underappreciated 1997 comedy Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion. The film that was headlined by Mira Savino coming off the back of her Oscar win in Woody Allen's Mighty Aphrodite. And Lisa Kudrow, who at the time was uh, had become a massive television star off the back of the role of Phoebe in Friends. Um, Kudrow, though, was um, was long part and parcel of what Romeo and Michelle would ultimately become because she appeared in the play Ladies Room. And Ladies Room was uh, penned by Robin Schiff. And she uh, she came up with the with the characters of Romeo and Michelle. Um, and Ladies Room would be a production that gave Lisa Kudrow her first um, professional acting gig, I gather. Um, and it, it was on a revival of the play that, um, that this particular film story started to started to come together. Uh, the play originated in 1987. But the turning point uh, appears to be in the story of Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion. Um, the success of Wayne's World, starring, of course, Mike Myers, directed by Penelope Spheris. Uh, Wayne's World was, and I believe still is, the most successful, um, the most successful MTV movie spin-off to date. Um, and it was a massive, massive sleeper hit, uh, generated a, a sequel that didn't uh, didn't generate the same amount of interest. But I still think the sequel to Wayne's World is really, really good. Um, but predictably, Hollywood did its thing. Wayne's World becomes a huge success. So movie studios go hunting for something else. And in the case of Disney's um, grown up arm, as it was, Touchstone Pictures, uh, executives went looking for what, what was deemed um, a female Wayne's World. Um, and uh, that, that's what brought it to the attention of Ladies Room. And they approached Robin Schiff with the idea. And she wasn't uh, as the story goes, and she talked to Vanity Fair for the film's uh, anniversary about this in some detail, but she wasn't particularly keen um, to turn the play Ladies Room into in, into a, a straight movie. But what she eventually clicked into is the idea of doing something with her two lead characters, with the characters of Romeo and Michelle. And then it hit her. Um, so why not do a story where this pair of characters uh, go off to their school reunion? And she envisaged the scene where they have to fill in the questionnaire about what they're doing now um, and, and she saw the comedy in that she saw the fun in that and so at the core of it she she loved the fact that she had these two characters she created who were who put friendship above everything else but also she came up with with something that she thought would work as a film um, that said this was not a quick process at all so whilst Disney um, initially signed off on Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion Schiff then went off to develop the screenplay 
And um, that process took four or five years before it got to a point where the project was ready to advance. Now, the, um, the, the, the crucial ingredient here was Lisa Kudrow, because obviously in the time um, in which uh, from Ladies Room to the point where Romeo and Michelle was becoming um, was becoming a movie on the verge of being greenlit, she had become an international star. Now she'd become an international star, of course, off the back of television and the uh, the box office charts are strewn with stories of how um, television stars failed to convert that stardom into box office gold. Uh, there are exceptions, of course. I mean, George Clooney is the most notable example, but even he struggled in the first instance to make that jump to take the television audience with him to the big screen nonetheless um, as production of friends continued um, it became the thing that during the breaks between filming of seasons um, that most of the stars would uh, friends would go off and they they would come up with uh, they, they would tackle a movie project so Courtney Cox of course um, struck gold with scream Jennifer Aniston did some really really interesting work and I've read some quite snidey stuff about her film choices, and I just don't buy it at all because I think in the midst of, um, a, 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 you know, some fairly by the numbers rom-coms and some fairly interesting rom-coms that she's done, she sought out and did some uh, interesting indie projects, and she carries that ethos through. Just have a look at the film Cake that came out a couple of years ago um, for telling a story that without her involved wouldn't really have pressed ahead. Um, in the case of Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, when it came to green lighting the film, it, it was pretty much at the point that without Lisa Kudrow involved, it wouldn't necessarily have pressed ahead. Um, Disney constantly was looking apparently at putting the project into some degree of, of turnaround, but eventually it got the green light and it attracted um, David Merkin, who had worked extensively on The Simpsons, um, to direct the film. Uh, Savino was brought in, cast off the back of um, uh, cast heavily off the back of her Oscar win, really, and there was so, that there, there was some um, debate as to whether she would take the role. I gather, uh, given that she'd hit Oscar gold, but you can see in her performance ju just how much joy there is in it now the the summer of 1997 when this film came out and we didn't get it until late summer in the UK um, but it was spring in the US and crucially it followed the release into cinemas of Gross Point Blank by just a couple of weeks and out of nothing here we had two school reunion um, comedies really uh, Gross Point Blank being a darker comedy Romeo and Michelle a, a far more joyful one although not without a couple of dark edges I'll come to that very shortly um, but the problem they'd hit with Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion as it approached its release was that the film's test screenings were not going well at all and as Schiff would, would tell Vanity Fair in the article back in 2017, it was, quote, one of the lowest tested movies in the history of Disney. So the film was being continually recut. And again, it's not uncommon. But you'll find lines in the trailer that didn't make it to the final cut of the film. Um, also, the, uh, the the trailer that went into cinema sold it as a, a, as a very broad comedy, which to a point it, it was. I'd argue, but also I think there's there's some interesting stuff going on. I wouldn't even say under the surface. I'd say on the surface of Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion that that lends it far more credence than it, it's sometimes given. Um, Disney um, Disney also had um, the, the spectre of Gross Point Blank on the horizon, and thus Romeo and Michelle's uh, release date was moved. To accommodate that, and interestingly, it landed in. I, I don't. I, it's not an uncommon thing to say a very male-driven uh, summer uh, of movies. But if you look at the, if you look at the posters of pretty much every big film that came out that 
that summer, um, the ones that had human beings on them, um, there, there wasn't a poster without a man. Um, with the exception of one, here was this film, Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, which just had its two stars as 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 you know as front and centre of the movie on the poster. Uh, Alan Cumming does appear in the film, but not not doesn't get a poster on. And I only bring this up because that 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 really what that that really felt different at the time. And I I say this through a male gaze. I don't pretend to be something I'm not. But I could I I could. I, when that when that summer rolled around, here was this film that just stuck out a little bit, you know, that, that we, we had Con Air, we had Men in Black, and then here was this gleeful comedy, and if you dig into what the film is, is ultimately about, a gleeful comedy that's about friendship, um, romance isn't a big thing in the film, in fact, romance in the movie um, is, is dream sequences, it's, it's, um, it's not done as any kind of main thrust of the film, and the core, the core stakes of the film are these two people and whether they, they would be friends or not. I mean, I'm reading Anna Faris's uh, memoir at the moment, which is really interesting and really enjoyable, and she talks about the moment of going back to her, her high school reunion, um, and, and kind of looking for a Romeo and Michelle moment. So the, the, this, this was sticking with lots of people. I've spoken to lots of people for whom this film is is, is really important, um, that it, it's one of their go-to films, that it's an absolute slice of joy and fun. But also, I'd suggest that, that there's there's a darkness in, a, uh, in the midst of it, and there's a scene that always makes me uh, curl up as if I'm watching a horror film, really. And it is the bit where the pair of them go back to the school reunion. They come up, they concoct this story about who invented post-its, um, and the story is exposed. And you see all the bullies, all the mean girls, um, ahead, long ahead of the film Mean Girls, um, j just repeating the behaviour that they'd inflicted on these two ten years previously. And I really struggle um, to watch that. Um, su such is the performance, particular uh, the, the performance of Mira Savino in the, in the scene where where the, the, the bullying is is back directly onto her. I just I just find it very moving and and quite difficult to watch. And I love the fact that that's that's brought into the midst of again what was built and what is a very broad comedy. Um, the um, the film the, the film eventually um, got its release um, and in the scheme of modern in the scheme of modern box office because the, the, the movie cost what twenty million to make and uh, there's a lovely story that two, two, apparently two hundred and forty thousand dollars of that production budget was spent licensing the song time after time for the, for the film's finale so pivotal is music to that film that you'd imagine because I, I I went through it and I read I, I read the full credits list there's an enormous number of songs and, and I would imagine that there's a seven figure song licensing bill as part and parcel of that I mean this is this is but by, by by all intents and purposes a low budget comedy I think it's a hugely ambitious one um, I think it's I think it's nicely directed as well and I think the way some of the flashback sequences are done this was in an era again where doing stuff digitally whilst it was progressing was still pretty much in its infancy and doing stuff digitally in the midst of a comedy um uh, you know a, 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 again effectively a low budget comedy wasn't well known and yet the way that the high school yearbook um is used to frame flashbacks is i think that's really good i think that's really well done i thought that at the time and i think that kind of work um still holds up um the film when it when it 
did hit cinemas, brought in just shy of $30 million at the box office. And by, uh, and, uh, but the story of the film didn't stop there. I think what's interesting is both of those high school reunion films that came out that year, both did pretty much similar box office. Both were low budget films and both were successful films that each turned a small profit. I would suggest that one of the core differences uh, with Romeo and Michelle's high school reunion is how well it's endured and how many people just cite it as such a such an important film to them. And this was a film, don't forget, I mean, coming back to that, coming back to that story where and this isn't uncommon for a comedy. I do appreciate that. Uh, but this was a film where there was lots of chopping and changing to settle in on that final cut where the testing was really bad. Um, at one stage and where there was a real sense that Disney had lost confidence in the project, that they were, they just held on to it, given who was attached to it. And yet this film was released and, and Schiff herself at the time, uh, uh, Schiff herself um, admits she, she was surprised at how good the reviews came in. Um, and the reviews did come in well and deservedly so. But there was um, there was a sense that um, people involved with the movie, I can't say first person for that, but but reading around it, um, didn't think they were going to get that kind of response to it. That perhaps because it came out of a studio environment, um, because you get the, the, the studio reading of how a film is going to play, that they were a little bit braced for the worst. And I did get that sense from it. Um, what happened um, after the film's release, though, is that its legacy endured. I mean, it's 21 years old now, and there are still people I talk to for whom this film means an awful lot. And I would suggest it still really, really holds up. And there have been attempts to extend it to revisit these characters in some form. There was talk at one point about a direct sequel a couple of years ago of continuing the, the film stories of Romeo and Michelle. Um, but the, 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 it, it's the kind of film that couldn't really be made now. Um, I think it was Lisa Kudrow who said they'd be reality TV stars were they to make that film now. And Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion, that it, it was of their time. And rightly so. And, and, and I think it works all the better for that. Um, I, I'm not one for films that try and be timeless. I don't think there's anything wrong in, in you know, in, in making a film contextualised around the moment in which that movie is being made, which sounds like a daft thing to say, but I see so many films just trying to make, just just, just remove themselves from current context. And um, I, I don't think that's necessary, personally. There was an attempt, um, there are a couple of attempts to bring it to um, a TV, one before the film was made, um, but again, based based on the original show, but also there was a prequel TV movie, and Robin Schiff did come in and write and direct this, and this was a backdoor pilot. So the idea was that if the TV movie um, took off, that a television series would come off the back of it. Um, Catherine Heigl um, and Alexandra Breckenridge took on the title roles in it, um, but it just didn't go down well. Um, the response to it was poor, the ratings were poor, and any hopes of continuing the story that way in some kind of prequel form were quickly dashed. Um, a musical of Romeo and Michelle's High School Reunion nonetheless came to the stage last year. But I think what's interesting and why I, I always want to give oxygen to films such as these 
um, is that, you know, we're, we're in an era where belated sequels have come and gone and just, I mean, look at Zoolander and the Anchorman sequel and they followed so far after and, and just didn't really have much to add or much to say. And I, I count me as one person who's wildly looking forward to Bill and Ted 3 because I, I think the passage of time and the wiseness of the people involved um, can do something interesting with that. I certainly hope so. But I would also throw out a, a line to Romeo and Michelle because I think these two characters completely stand out I think they stood out at the multiplexes in the 1990s um, I think they I think they stand out now I think if you I, I mean we've got the spy who dumped me coming into UK cinemas uh, last week by the time you listen to this um, and even that that still feels like a rarity that the, the women headline you know the, the, the two women headline a big summer comedy movie I would suggest that Romeo and Michelle in many many ways was ahead of its time but I think also crucially um, I think it's just a film about being friends and in an era where stakes are supposedly, you know, at the end of the world, at the, at, at, you can go watch an end of the world box office or a saving the planet box office, uh, film at the box office, it, pretty much any week in any cinema. But how many, how many big broad Hollywood comedies can you go and watch where the stakes are more important that a lifelong friendship might be being torn apart? I think that's something to cherish personally. That's been the latest episode of Film Stories. Um, as always, my, my humble plea that if you can give um, this little podcast any oxygen, uh, it makes a huge difference. I, I, am, I am just a, an old nerd in a room with, um, with an increasingly expensive microphone because the last one broke. Um, I'm on Twitter at Simon Brew. The podcast is on Twitter at Film Stories Pod and um, anything you can do to help spread the word, uh, it just means the world. And thank you very much. I will return shortly um, with another bunch of film stories. Take care.